Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. They know you. They recognize you. I know I sound crazy, but this is the kind of thing that gets people so infatuated and addicted to beekeeping because you get to know these bees like your own girls. Like I have four million daughters. Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Jeremy Elshan, the editor of MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that are prompting us to rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. As I've said, money itself is just an idea. Humans made it up. Therefore, we can change it and upgrade it. This week, we're asking a question. How do we put a price on nature? And what's the risk if we don't come up with an answer soon? When we want to assess how the economy is doing, the measure we usually look at is GDP, gross domestic product. That's a number that reflects the total value of a country's economy, and we use it to measure growth over time. It's the main indicator we use to judge the health of the economy. The creation of GDP was originally inspired by an urgent need. During the Great Depression, policymakers needed a way to understand which parts of the economy were struggling the most. We're still using that same tool 100 years later, but now we have a new, very pressing need. The economic cost has gone up and up and up into the trillions of dollars. And when you look at the most expensive disasters, seven of the 10 most expensive have been hurricanes in the United States. A recent study looked at the economic consequences of climate change and concluded it will make the U.S. poorer and more unequal if present trends continue. The U.S. suffered 22 separate billion-dollar disasters last year, shattering all records from the previous four decades. The effects of climate change are becoming more and more present in our lives. In response, some economists say we need to find a new way to value our resources, not just how fast we can grow. GDP only tells part of the story. Let me give you an example. When we build back after a hurricane or earthquake, that counts as growth, even though we've just suffered through a disaster. And it means we don't factor in the cost of those losses. We also don't count the value contributed by the natural world. The USDA says that one bee colony is worth 100 times more in economic value to its community than to the beekeeper who manages it. Honey production in the U.S. is valued at around $300 million a year. The point is, GDP may no longer be the best tool for understanding our economy. It's kind of like a doctor taking your temperature. It'll tell you that you don't have a fever, but it won't do anything for your sprained ankle. We asked Robert Costanza, a professor of public policy at Australian National University, how we might come up with an update to GDP. I think the problem is times have changed. Built capital is no longer the limiting factor in improving people's lives. We need to start measuring what really does contribute to well-being. And GDP is not sacred. GDP actually played a big part in winning the Second World War. The Second World War was about who could produce the most weapons, you know, the fastest. And so understanding how to produce all those planes and tanks and ammunition was really a critical thing. And before that, there was limited understanding of how that complex economic system worked and how to measure the total output of the systems. The idea of upgrading GDP or coming up with alternatives 
has been around for several decades. Herman Daly, who served at the World Bank as senior economist in its environment department, developed the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, ISEW, in 1989. The ISEW evolved into the Genuine Progress Indicator, GPI. The cleanup costs of pollution are entered positively in GDP, whereas there's no offsetting negative entry for actual pollution itself. So there's a huge debt overhang way over and above the actual physical wealth of the economy. Some alternatives to GDP have already been put into use. The Kingdom of Bhutan came up with the Gross National Happiness Indicator, and the United Nations has the Happy Planet Index. Our lives have gotten so much more complex, and GDP just can't capture all the things we would want to take into account when we think about progress. Even the Nobel Prize-winning economist and one of the main originators of GDP, Simon Kuznets, warned against using it as a measure of societal well-being. Here's Robert Costanza again. GDP continues to go up, even though people don't feel that things are improving. So how do we make a better world? I think that's what people all around the world want for themselves, for their children, for their grandchildren. You know, we're not doing that now, but we can if we change the way we value things, if we change our fundamental goal toward a broader sense of well-being, a well-being for humans and well-being for the rest of nature, well-being for the whole system. Rachel Koning Beals reports on climate change for MarketWatch. She's looked into what could be the next evolution of GDP, finding new ways to rethink how we value nature. So check this out. Tiny bees, we see a lot of stories about bees being extinct and at risk. According to the World Economic Forum, the loss of pollinators, bees, other pollinators alone, would lead to a drop in annual global agricultural output of about $217 billion. So losing bees is not just a t-shirt issue or a rally issue. It's an economic issue. And it's not limited to just buzzing insects. Save the whales has been a slogan since I was a kid. Some estimates say that if we lose our whale population, what we're losing is about $2 million per whale. That's because they're a great carbon suck. They help pull carbon pollution out of the air. So Stephanie, I had absolutely no idea that whales were this important to the ecosystem. And I guess that's sort of makes the case for the need for this kind of measure to put a price on that. In order to even begin to address climate change, we have to start thinking about just how much the environment is tied to our economic and social health. It's going to become increasingly difficult to price insurance premiums for storms, to accurately gauge risk to agricultural markets. So it does seem sort of economists' problems, but it's going to impact everybody. We all need to be insured. We all need to be eating. And we just need to be a lot smarter about how we factor in whales and bees and fishing privileges and the health of water sources. Or we're going to be really at risk of losing these things forever. And there are ways to use the natural resources we have to our advantage. According to Robert Costanza, something as seemingly small as knowing where to build and not build can actually save us a lot of money over time. The more coastal wetlands you have bordering developments, the lower the damages are from storms. We estimated 
that coastal wetlands currently provide about $450 billion a year globally in terms of storm protection. If they weren't there, those damages would be $450 billion larger. From a policy perspective, we still have the capabilities to respond to these pressing natural disasters. Economists and others are working to develop tools that paint a clearer picture of where we are, taking in more factors than just growth alone. When GDP goes up, it means the economy is growing. More money coming in from jobs, more tax revenues for things that we care about, like schools and roads. The challenge, though, is that when you start to care about things that aren't directly tied to consumption or spending money, it says nothing about this. Justin Johnson, an assistant professor in applied economics at the University of Minnesota, is working on one solution. Our research created the concept of GEP, which is Gross Ecosystem Product. Natural capital exists in the natural world for free. We have done a bunch of research now documenting the many different ways that humans benefit from this natural capital. We actually have a term for that. We call it ecosystem services. And so ecosystem services is just the value that humans get from this natural capital or from nature. Of the 18 ecosystem services that Johnson talks about, 14 of them have declined since 1970, according to the World Bank. That means losing programs that preserve wetlands or protect plants and animals from extinction. The World Economic Forum estimates that $44 trillion of the world's GDP is dependent on nature. That's half of global GDP. The work that we've been doing here is attempting to, number one, better understand what are the ecosystem services that we are benefiting from, and number two, what are the policies that can protect natural capital and ecosystem services. A great example of this is clean water. The natural environment does a great job filtering out pollutants as water flows across the landscape. If we are to lose natural habitat, we also lose this ability to filter these pollutants out of the water. And this means either that we'll be drinking polluted water or that we'll have to spend a whole lot more on municipal gray infrastructure solutions to making that water clean. Economists and politicians around the world are looking not only to measure these examples of natural capital, but to find concrete ways to protect them. National governments, such as Costa Rica, for instance, implementing what are called payments for ecosystem services. These are payments that reflect that a landowner's decision to keep natural habitat on their land gives value to everybody else. A water fund is an agreement that allows people living in a city who want to have clean water to pay upstream landowners to keep their land so that the natural environment can deliver clean water to the city. And it's a win-win because the landowners are receiving a payment to keep their land natural that they like that. And then the people living in the city are able to benefit from cleaner water. And this is often much less expensive than paying for a gray infrastructure water purification plant. Johnson hopes to see similar initiatives on a national scale in the U.S. 
there's growing interest. The Biden administration has already made quite clear that understanding the benefits that nature provides to humans is a critical element that needs to be included. These are things that are essential in the decision-making process so we can encourage the right policies and encourage the right landscape management tactics that are good for both humans and nature. After the break, we'll find out more about some local and statewide programs that rethink how we value our natural world. Technology can make the world better. At UST, we're building a future where people everywhere are empowered to live better lives. It's transformation you can feel. And you don't have to do it alone. We believe in the power of technology to transform businesses and build a better world. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we learned how we can use our natural resources to our advantage. When it comes to valuing our natural resources, MarketWatch reporter Rachel Koning Beals says we're making some headway. Two big global events loom for investors, consumers, government policymakers. One is in November in Glasgow, Scotland. It's the biggest all countries on board determining meeting for setting and making sure countries that have pledged to cut their emissions are keeping up with their pledges. We've heard U.S. politicians talk about the Green New Deal, really, really rethinking how our economy is structured around green principles. So similar to that, this China-based meeting in October is sort of a natural new deal, potentially. Alternatives to GDP help us take preventive measures. They also help us predict the economic toll of damages so we can fix these problems before it's too late. Ida, one of the strongest hurricanes on record to hit Louisiana, the state's third major hurricane in just over a year. According to July data released by the U.S. Drought Monitor, less than 1% of the land in western states was drought-free. Mass evacuations as raging wildfires spread in the west. The World Meteorological Society reporting weather disasters are happening four to five times more often and causing seven times more damage than in the 1970s. More and more, countries are realizing it's actually in their best interest to adopt these kinds of policies. Here's Robert Costanza of Australian National University. China is also an interesting story, where they're now trying to achieve what they call an ecological civilization. They're recognizing that this headlong rush to develop in the conventional Western way and maximize GDP growth has produced a lot of air pollution and water pollution and dissatisfaction in the population. They're beginning to take those things much more seriously and to try to convert from fossil fuels to renewable energy at a rapid rate. Stephanie, as an economist, how much do you think changing how we measure our natural capital could really impact climate change? So getting the cost right will help focus attention on the scale of the problem. We need policymakers to be thinking along those lines, but it will take more than new measurements to tackle the climate crisis in time. We'll need a lot of mobilization and international cooperation. Doing nothing or doing way too little is going to cost a fortune, and not just in financial terms. You raise a good point that climate change is always a global issue, but the way people experience it is also very local. 
My name is Virginia Webb. I'm a third-generation beekeeper and the owner of MTN Honey, Mountain Honey. My father gave me my very first beehive when I was six years old, and that was in the early 1960s. And I was hooked on bees ever since. My name is Jay Williams, and I run Williams Honey Farm. We're a small mom-and-pop shop based in Franklin, Tennessee. I manage between 75 and 100 colonies, which is about 10 million bees. We met beekeepers in Georgia and Tennessee who told us about how their livelihood has already been affected by climate change. The climate changes that are happening aren't just in the West or in the Pacific or in the Atlantic. It's worldwide. And here in the Southeast United States, one of the major changes that we're seeing is that we're having an earlier spring. That means that plants are no longer blooming the normal times that they do they're blooming a little bit earlier. And that really can affect the beekeeper himself because beekeepers may be pollinating bees on plants on another state or another area when they need to be coming to Georgia and pollinating. That could be watermelons, it could be cucumbers, it could be pumpkins, it could be cotton. So the change in the season is greatly affecting the beekeeper. Our numbers have dropped dramatically in 10 years. There are many, many problems or many, many challenges that we have as beekeepers. My bees need a lot more help to survive the winter because they don't have the surplus to be able to make it through the winter on their food stores. All around me, you know, the crops are basically browning down a lot faster and our windows are getting smaller and smaller. You know, it's kind of like trying to take a long distance road trip with a solar vehicle and thunderstorms keep rolling through and you're like, I hope this thing doesn't last too long. I hope I can make it. That's how it feels. Virginia and Jay have both noticed the same thing. A warmer spring for them means the bees are in the wrong place at the wrong time and then don't have long enough before the summer weather gets too hot to make the amount of honey they normally would. And while the consequences of a changing climate affect local beekeepers and their hives, the effects also ripple out widely. Look at all the variety of foods that we have today. Watermelons, the cantaloupes, all of those things are pollinated by honeybees. Almonds from Hershey's Almond Bars, they are almost exclusively pollinated by honeybees. And I'm holding in my hand a one pound jar of honey. In order for the bees to make this one pound jar of honey, they have to tap two million flowers and they're gonna fly over 50,000 miles to do that. No other insect can be managed to work with our major agricultural growers in pollinating the fruits and vegetables as the honeybee. The loss of honeybees could dramatically shape the way we live. Projections of how our lives may be uprooted make climate change feel so overwhelming that it's really easy to feel defeated. What's encouraging about these alternatives to GDP is that they help us wrap our heads around a problem that often feels too big to tackle. Here's economist Justin Johnson again. I think there's a, a ton of really exciting things coming out. Just seeing the interest from all different parts of society to use our model. We've seen government, we've seen some of the international negotiations that are coming up be interested in this. We've also seen corporations who want to say, you know, how can we make our supply chain most green and how can we incorporate this into our decision making? This level of interest was not there five years ago. It's much more a part of the discussions from many different parts of society. And it's exciting to see how they're building on the tools already well-established within economics to make more accurate predictions and ones that better reflect what really matters to you know, our human well-being. 
These new economic indicators help us look at the world and ask, what is this worth to us? And what are we willing to do to hang on to it? Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard, please leave us a review. And if you have ideas for future episodes, drop us a line at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Coming up in a few weeks, we'll be doing a special mailbag episode where we'll answer your questions. And if you send us your best new idea in money, we might talk about it on the show. Thanks to Rachel Conning Beals, Robert Costanza, Justin Johnson, Virginia Webb, and Jay Williams. To learn more about alternatives to GDP, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Jeremy Olsham. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast from MarketWatch, produced by Best Case Studios. Devin Maverick-Robbins and Suzanne Myers are our producers. Our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockard. Our researcher is Alana Myers. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. And Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer for MarketWatch. Our associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University, and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea.